Numbers, chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Father, thank you, because ultimately all that we have, every resource is from you. So thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of that and to give you due gratitude. And Father, um, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that you've given us to confess our sins, Lord, to acknowledge and recognize them, to lay them out before you. And I thank you for the ultimate payment, atonement for our sins. That's Christ. So, Father, we ask this morning that um, you would help us, Lord. You would help us to be mindful of our sins, to confess them to you, to be mindful of the means by which you have taken care of that for us in Christ, Lord. And thank you for um, those who serve, Father to bring that reminder to us. We pray and ask that you would help John in this way as he does that. And we ask you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. So Jesus cleans, covers, and deals with us to life. So we come before him in need of these things, and he cleans, covers, and deals with us to life in good ways brings us to the experience we're supposed to experience and live under. Now, this week as I was studying and preparing to open the word with you, I was thinking about how thankful I am for traffic signs. Um, do, you, do you ever realize how many traffic signs there are and how great they are for you? Do you like traffic signs? I don't know. They're, Stacey does not. They are everywhere and they're tremendously helpful, right? They tell you where to merge, the speed to drive at, and for the record, the speed limit is the limit. It's the top, not the like median suggestion, right? Okay. Uh, it tells you what is forbidden. Becca, yeah, you got it. Okay. And the signs then give indicators that I've gone the wrong way. And a dead end is not the desired destination, typically, when I'm heading somewhere, right? So they can be really helpful. And the truth is that I often get most frustrated with my fellow man when they don't obey the signs. It's usually when I'm like on my bike or as a pedestrian walking and cars are almost hitting me and I say some things in English 
And it comes out, didn't you see the sign? Right? Hand gestures or not. I don't do that. I'm a really sanctified pastor. Don't worry. But the traffic signs are this constant reminder of the law for us. That's why they exist. That's why they're there. When we need them, they're right where we need to hear the law in that space. And the funny thing is that those signs really don't actually have the power to get me to follow them, to obey them. And I, and maybe you're like me, usually see them as mere suggestions. Not the speed, you should go the speed limit. Unless it's flow of traffic on the interstate, that's 80. Go that, that speed, right? But these signs, even though they're everywhere, they do not generate guilt when they are violated. And that's a little bit of a confession here. It's a safe place. Jackie said we need to come with our confession. So I don't always follow all the traffic signs, and I, because I don't feel guilt around them until there's a cop present, right? And then everything changes. When the enforcer of the law is around, aha, all of a sudden I pay attention to the signs. And what, what did that speed limit sign say as we just went by it? I'm, I'm going under it, right? And there are signs in our text today in Numbers 5 that I think help us see that Jesus cleans He covers and he deals with us to life. And here in Numbers 5, we have the the code of the law, like given to the people. It's not just a narrative only of their story where other great epics leave out the code of the law. When you read Tolkien, you don't hear like the law interspersed with the tale. It's just the story. But here in scripture, we have the story with the code of law, like how people are supposed to live. As the story of Israel in the wilderness unfolds, God gives reminders essentially to his people of the law and the image of what life is to look like under the law before God. Israel is, as we've talked about, meant to show the world what, it like, what life with God actually looks like. So the nation, the people as individuals need to live right. They have to look different because they have been redeemed. They're to image what it means to be brought out and then live before Yahweh. And the law always works this way. It's a guide for life from redemption, not actually for it. Most of our small groups this week, we talked about the Ten Commandments given to Israel as a response to being brought out of slavery, being redeemed. And this morning, I want us to notice the code, but just long enough. I just want us to look briefly enough at the code that we will see it point to Christ for us. So we start first with the code. And people say they like the whiteboard, so it's back. We'll give you some different icons for each point. This morning, the first one is... A speed limit. Have you seen? Is it 55 anywhere anymore? I don't remember. Center City is 55? No, I think it's 65. It's technically a highway. Do you know that about Center City? Stop driving so slow on Center City. It's a highway. That's the first time Beth has ever amened anything in this church. No, that's not true. That is not true. Right. So here we have the code. Keeping the camp clean is where God starts in this um, essential communication to his people. And he says, put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge or anyone who is unclean through contact with 
the dead. And there is meant to be a purity in the camp because this is God's dwelling place. So those with disease, temporary situations in their body and encounters with the dead have been made unclean and must be sent out. And he says that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. This is the word God is speaking to Moses. So related to the holiness of God and these unclean things are not um, a permanent thing. And actually we'll see in Leviticus and other places we have guidance on uh, when somebody is actually unclean, how they are to be found to be clean again and they can come back into the camp. So it's not uh, when he sends them out of the camp, it's not a permanent sending away here, but it is something to keep the purity of the camp in that moment. Then we heard of the confession and restitution, the feeling the sense of guilt and making things right. And this is coming to terms with sin and making things right with those you've sinned against. And we read this and we're like, man, can we have more of this in our day, right? If you sin against someone here, you were to pay it back 20% more. Right here, we have reparations in Scripture. There's proof positive, right? So if you damage to property, if you give fraud, if you make false statements that affect the well-being of the community of faith, they had to be dealt with like right away. And this is what God is communicating to his people. He's saying that human relationship and a restitution of value were essential for maintaining harmony and holiness in the community. So there's to be this a purity about the camp, and there's also to be a harmony about the camp because justice has been exercised and lived out in response to sin. And it's nothing new for us as Christians. The New Testament affirms that reconciliation with one's fellow man is required for those who would actually be at peace with God. So we have them being clean, and then we have them making things right, and then we didn't read it, but we have this test for adultery. And I didn't have Jackie read it because I didn't want you to get restless before we even got into the text. Because essentially what happens if a husband thought for any reason that his wife could have been unfaithful to him and he didn't have any evidence of the unfaithfulness, he could go with her to the priest and the priest would prepare a a drink, essentially water mixed with ink and the dust of the tabernacle floor And then she would recite a curse on herself that she would take on if she had, in fact, been unfaithful. And she was essentially saying, I stand before God that he would judge me. Then she would drink the water. And if she was guilty of infidelity, God tells us that she would be barren. There would then be evidence of her infidelity. And he says, this is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. And the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. There's so much to unpack This is no longer a law in the New Testament, right? This is not, we should not see this ritual as some primitive magic that was to be acted out. But it is actually a prayer before the Lord to rule directly in the lives of his people. 
And this, for them, assured accurate justice. And if the wife was innocent, her reputation was cleared before her husband and the public. And what God is saying about the man going free is it's good for the man to pursue faithfulness, to ensure faithfulness in his marital covenant. But there's so much to unpack, we didn't read it. But to be clean, things made right, and to be faithful to covenant these are important in the camp and that's why they're here this code of law and this is why it's necessary because this is the dwelling place of the holy god among his people and this is what life with him looks like because god's holiness is always on display and there's an elevation here of the other when sinned against restoration would come and it uncovers how much god prizes faithfulness in relationship with him and with each other and only before god do they have guilt maybe you you notice that that there was specifically when breaking faith with the lord is what sin looks like One writer says, the heart of the book of Numbers is the dwelling of a holy God in the midst of his people. First of all, in the pilgrim camp in the wilderness and ultimately looking forward to the day when he would dwell in their midst in the promised land. Since Israel's God is is holy, therefore his people must also be holy. And unholy people who come in contact with a holy God will be consumed by his wrath. If they continue to be unholy, he must either abandon them or destroy them all. Altogether, the way of life, therefore, is ne- this way of life is necessary, and the becomes the way of obedience before God's laws. These are not arbitrary, meaningless regulations. Busy work assigned to His people by an over-controlling deity who has nothing better to do with His time. These laws are the way to life and blessing. The wisdom of a sovereign God unfolded for the benefit of the people with whom He has entered a covenant relationship. Life in all its fullness means life lived in the presence of God according to His law. And this is what we have before us in Numbers 5. This is what we have going forward in the wilderness journey. And the truth is they try. But we are just a few chapters off from the people complaining to God. We're just a little bit away from division in the camp, from uncleanness and guilt running rampant. And as the journey goes on, it's likely as we study it, we will actually see more of ourselves in the disobedient Israel than the generation that actually gets to go to the promised land. The wilderness journey for us then is like putting stakes in the sand to remind us along the way that we have carried uncleanness, that we have been guilty and we are unfaithful. They're all signs pointing to something better for us. Because like these Israelites, we've tried. And none is able, able to be pure. None is able to be holy and faithful in all things. We need a better way of being clean, covered, and made faithful. We hear from Paul in Galatians 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
So the Spirit allows us to recognize and own our need and brings us to Jesus. So we start with the idea then from the code to the truth that Jesus cleaned. And if you can tell me what this is, you'll get extra credit. The wife is so smart. You ready for it? I was going to write on it, too. Soap. That's soap. Does it look like soap? Come on, Judy. You're a preschool teacher. You should know what my drawings look like. You got it? Okay, good. Yeah. Have, have you ever felt dirty? You know, you've gone through something where not even a shower makes you feel clean. I know sometimes we're in situations and we joke like, oh, I need a shower. But like, there's something to that. Many of us have gone through an experience where it's like, I can't get clean. And, and that's what the sense of uncleanness before God actually feels like. Like, I'm dirty and I can't get clean. And Ian Duguid says that I am by nature defiled and unclean. And therefore, I defile everything that I touch. This natural depravity and darkness comprehensively unfits me for God's presence. Of course, my natural depravity proceeds to work itself out in all manner of particular sins for which I am also accountable. But my fundamental problem is deeper than that. It lies in the fact that I am a sinner in the penetrating analysis Analysis of the human condition that the Bible presents, I am born unfit for God's presence, only deserving permanent exclusion from the camp of God. Last week we talked about this in the five chapter gospel that you are created in the image of God. You are meant to be perfect as he is perfect. But sin enters the human family in the garden and from that moment we're always unclean. Apart from a work of God himself, we come into this world unclean, called to be set outside the camp. It's not meant to be that way. Because we're created in his image, made for purity before him, to be naked and unashamed. And since the garden, we've been in need of real cleaning. And being unclean is going to remain central to Israel's story. And when Jesus comes to do his ministry to proclaim the kingdom, he challenges the religious for abusing and oppressing those in need as they hid behind the need for ritual cleanness. We see it in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? A priest comes, a Levite passes by, and neither of them stop to help the beaten traveler. And it's likely, and like we've, we've heard it preached, I don't think I preach it this way, but I've heard it preached like defending the priest and Levite because they didn't want to be unclean. He could have been dead and then they wouldn't have been able to go to the temple and perform their duties or worship in the presence of God. And then in some key places, Jesus reveals that ultimately to be made clean, he's the one that has to do it. We think of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood in Luke 8. And we've just been through the Gospel of Luke. We remember this story. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, a great crowd, right? And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. 
just think of this woman growing up. She's a Jew. She has an issue of blood. She has heard this story of Numbers 5. Men and women. If you have a discharge there to be what? Sent out of the camp. They're unclean. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Just imagine that, the 12 years of being unclean, outside, not allowed to worship, always labeled unclean. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well go in peace. Jesus makes her well. He makes her clean. He touches lepers. He heals those with a discharge. He comes near to the dead and he gives them life. He's not tainted by uncleanliness. He makes them clean. There's no hope for us of being clean, being pure before God, except in Christ. It firmly establishes then a reliance on him for this cleanness that is needed to be in the presence of a pure and holy God. We would see it when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And I love Peter. Like, Peter's my favorite apostle because he can be an idiot. And many of you know this about me, that I can as well be an idiot at times. And Jesus still, he comes and gets me, right? Just like he does with Peter. And Peter says to him in John 13, you shall never wash my feet. It's like, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. I'm below you. I'm going to let everybody know that you're more important. But Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What a beautiful word from our Savior. It's not about you cleaning yourself up. If he doesn't wash you, you have no share in him. And we think we have to get cleaned up before we come to Jesus. Joey was talking about this. I don't know. You were talking to somebody about sanctification. And he gave me like just this look into how you all think of me, right? And Joey said, it was something about somebody who was struggling with something like, I got to get fixed up. I got to be clean before I can be involved or be around. And he's like, do you think Jonathan has it all together? I'm like, what are you trying to say, Joey? Right? Yeah, you can talk to the front row. They will tell you. I yell at people with harshness. I am the perfect husband. But I'm sure, no, that's not true, right? But there are things of uncleanness in my life, in this process of I can't clean myself up. Like, have you all tried? You might, maybe you're more gifted, I don't know. But we need Jesus to clean us. And that's the point of it, because this is the work that he does. He makes you pure before the holy God, makes you blameless. And we have to let him make us clean. It's the only way. I love John 15. And he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he will take away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. This goes to Lawrence's talk about sanctification earlier, that it's an arduous, hard journey. But you're being pruned for more faithfulness, right? Already you are clean because the word I have spoken to you. 
Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. This is Jesus speaking to his followers and speaking to us as well. Already you are clean because of the word that he's spoken to you. I've quoted the song Touch Your Robe by Gable Price and Friends before, and I'm gonna, every time it plays in our pre-service music, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite song right now. And I love it, but there's this uh, section that says, because when you make your heart my home, you didn't make me take my shoes off. You didn't care what I stepped in, because when you say I'm clean, I'm clean. So the truth is, it's what Jesus says that matters. And he says, if you are in him, you've believed in him, you are clean. You are allowed to enter in. You are brought in to worship. And no one can take that away from you because he has done the work that is necessary to make you clean. We see that further in the story of uh, that Peter, again, being a little silly, right? And his vision that he had on the rooftop and Jesus cleaning and saying, go to the Gentiles because I'm calling them clean. There came a voice as Peter's having this vision, right? He says, the voice says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And some of us that really like pork, we're like, this is our verse because this says we can eat them pigs now, right? But what Peter is saying, yes, you can eat now. You can eat whatever meat you want. But this, the more important point is that there are people that have been labeled as unclean and outside the camp. And Jesus is saying, you can't say that about them. Right? Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. And he said, what God has made clean, do not call common. Because Jesus has worked his cleaning work for us. So the profound picture of separation from God that was set up in the Old Testament found its answer in Jesus. And he came to deal with the living death in our souls by washing our hearts clean. And he came to take us from death and bring us into life. And indeed, he did so by taking upon himself the very exclusion that uh, that we deserve from the presence of God. He was taken outside the city of Jerusalem to be crucified outside the camp, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. And he was cut off from the fellowship with his father on the cross in a black night of agony in his soul that far outweighed the physical sufferings of crucifixion. And that is how he enabled our alienation from God to be dealt with so that we might no longer be outsiders condemned to an eternity away from the presence of God. Now we are God's children. Welcome into his presence for Jesus sake, because he made us clean. Amen. Phil got it. That was, that's the perfect amen spot. So know that, friends. If you're in Christ, you are clean. But making us clean is not all he does. And Jesus also covers. Now this one is going to... Okay, be ready, Judy. Let's see. We'll do like this. What, what is that, guys? It's, it's what? Okay. A, 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 a wishbone? <laughs> Folks, this is a robe <laughs> that you wear, okay? 
me put you, maybe if I put a body in it. Now, well, you'll remember it now, won't you? You got know, like a very stiff robe. It's, I'm growing. I, it's an arduous journey to sanctification and drawing these little icons. But Jesus covers. There is, this is in the New Testament, and I know some of it's going to be radically true, that the scripture tells us, fathers specifically, because fathers must do this often, do not exasperate your children. Right? So be exhorted, men. Don't exasperate your children. And I know some of us do it as a hobby. Right. And you have to know that one of my favorite things right now is to take my children to buy something that they really want and to pay for it. And I know that doesn't sound like it's me getting my kids, but they are uh, still at an age where for some reason, I don't know, Iona, she's 13 and she still is like this. Right. But when they have money, they want to pay for things. That's weird. Right. Or I'm doing a great job of parenting and raising them. But. Even when they have their own money, even when they could cover it, in, or, or maybe they're not even fully have the amount, and I just needed to make up a little bit of the extra, I like to cover the cost, all of it. Right? Super gracious dad. This is why our budget is crazy. Maybe. And it, 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 part of it is I'm trying to teach them something as I'm trying to teach you something. And the truth is it won't last much longer. Eventually daddy's money will be their favorite money, right? And so they'll always want to spend it. But for now, for some reason, it's probably because they don't earn it. Maybe we've got to make them work harder for it. But I think when the father pays for something that the child could almost pay for, in total, it gives us a picture of life with Christ. And what we have doesn't, you should know this, what we have, even some of us that are super holy and super good, we, what we have doesn't quite cover what is needed. Some of us, like, there's no chance it's going to even cover a portion of it. But rather than just paying what is missing, and we have to catch this, that Jesus doesn't just make up the difference for you. He takes the cost of it all in covering you. And here with a picture of confession and restitution, we get some sense of our need for this before him. And we might be made ceremonial, ceremonially clean. I could say that word, right? But what else might we actually get into in the, the way of life before God? Like, we're likely to do something. And here in the text, someone commits sin, which is always breaking faith with God, like we've mentioned, and harms others in this example in Numbers 5. And guilt comes, and they're called to confess and make things right. They pay restitution, and they sacrifice a ram of atonement, and then things are made right for worship again. And so that's the model that we have, the pattern that we have. And it points to the need for a redemption price to be paid. We've already talked about redemption price in our study of numbers. But both before God, there has to be a, like a sacrifice that is made. And to others, the restitution that is to be made. This is a redemption price. And we know that this pattern is good, but it's not perfect Because the blood of bulls and goats, of rams, is insufficient to permanently solve the solution of our sin. 
So we live this life and we come to the counter and we don't have the cash, but Jesus stands beside us and he has it covered. At the cross, he gives us his righteousness. He is our atoning sacrifice, making us right before God. And we go on living, trusting his covering for our sin. We've been made clean and he keeps us clean. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He's the propitiation. He has fully met the wrath of God against sin in our place. He is the atoning sacrifice. Now you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price where being made clean brings us in, being covered keeps us in. Paul will say to the Galatian church, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's why it's, it's supposed to be a robe, the picture. My good friend Seth, he, he got to preach one Sunday at our, our church in Washington. And he preached on that text about putting on Christ. And he put on his actual uh, bathrobe that was fairly dingy and tattered. At least this is how I remember it. And it, it's kind of a, a ratty thing that he wore around the house. And he said, this is us, right? There's kind of rags beneath. And then he brought out this fresh, brand new, white, huge bathrobe. And he put that on. And all you saw was the brilliant white of this robe. He said, this is what it's like to put on Christ. This is what the Father sees when he looks at you. He sees Jesus and his garments of righteousness. And so guilt before the code of the law is dealt with. And we think, what more do we need to be clean and cover? And this is the work that Jesus does. He says, put on my righteousness. You have gained all that is mine. You are now seen as me. Not only did he make you clean, but he covers you from here all the way till we get home. And these are the things you need to be clean and covered, to get into the promised land, to make it all the way home with him. And being clean and covered actually gives us life. It gives us freedom in Christ. gives us new identity. It, it gives us purpose in life. And it's honestly these truths that we focus on. Like all the time in the church. You have been made clean. You have been covered in Christ. And it's what we look to when the journey with Jesus encounters snakes in rough terrain. But Jesus isn't done with us at just cleaning and covering. Because Jesus also deals with us. I didn't have a C. So I, I left it with deals with us. And this. No guesses? Okay. Let's see. Got to put these really cute glasses that I have on. This gray goatee is being a pastor's heart. I got eyes too. <laughs> Broad shoulders. Do you know what it is now? 
Amir. Yes. And I look better in person. <laughs> right? Now, I want to be absolutely clear. And you guys know this about me. I am a grace junkie. I think the cleaning and covering grace of Christ is where it is at. And it's what we need and where we must center our lives. But I also want to recognize the danger of seeing grace as something less than it actually is, merely as a way out of wrong or just an insurance policy for us. Because if we are just left the way we are, I think grace is cheapened. Diedrich Bonhoeffer talked about this, right? He called it cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Looking at the adultery test here in Numbers 5, we see the woman not judged by outward appearance or the word of another. It is just her and God. It gives us a picture of Jesus with us, not only as a judge, but as the one who sees us and deals with what is inside. And he will not settle for clean and covered alone, God. And where we wear him like a white robe, he is determined to deal with what is underneath those garments. One conversation that I had as a young adult pastor always sticks with me to this point. I was meeting with a young man who had made an absolutely terrible decision and he had harmed others in that decision And in discussing it, I asked him what his response to the accusations against him would be. And he answered, I am forgiven by Jesus. End of story. And I I wanted to kill the man. And like theologically, yes. You're forgiven if you confess, right? I mean, Jesus' work has cleaned you and covered you. But there are also consequences of the sin that are needing to be dealt with. Restitution that has to be made in the issues in his own heart that led to this situation. The grace of Christ promises, though more than just cleaning and covering, it promises to deal with me. To do the reparative work on my heart and give me his likeness. The image in the mirror changes. It starts to look increasingly like Christ. and invites us to lean in to transformation. Over the last few years, many of you have heard me mention the Enneagram. Right? Have you ever heard me say that? Or my number? Anybody know what my number is? Don't say it out. See, you don't even know. Good, you don't listen to me. You know my number. No, four? Oh, I wish. No, right? Eight, yeah, definitely eight. But I don't use Enneagram anymore because I have to tell you that I don't think it's a tool some of us believed it was. And uh, there's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of chatter of it lately. And you have to know that if you use the Enneagram, I'm not going to label you as demonic. Other people will, but I'm not, Right? But I noticed in utilizing the Enneagram for me and those around me likely to claim the labels that it provided, that it was being used permissively rather than transformatively. Does that make sense? 
And I suppose any personality test or profile could be guilty of this. It's like, I am a this, so I always act like this. And like, sure, that's helpful in some way to know where you're prone to vice or where you might just uh, respond to certain things. But that's not what we are supposed to be about. Jesus doesn't care if I'm an eight. So you have to know that this year I have determined far more to be concerned with what Jesus says of me, not with any personality profile says of me. And the truth is that Jesus desires to deal with our hearts, to face our trauma, to shift our desires, to bring healing where we thought it could never come, to actually give us the sense of being clean in him. And this is renewal worked in us so that it can be brought to others. Paul writes to the Roman church, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you need to know that this is his promise to us from Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So where I would rely on, oh, I'm an eight. That's permission to be a jerk. No, this is what's true of me. Jesus is doing a work by his spirit in my heart so I will become more like him. And it's promised. He's faithful. He's going to do it. Maybe this is just for me. Like, I don't know what you're dealing with. There's old trauma in my life that I'm going through and bringing it before the Lord and saying to him, like, what is it you say of me? What is it that you say of me? Because that's what matters. You've cleaned me. You've covered me. And now you're dealing with all of who I am that I can be brought before you, blameless and made right in your presence. And it frees us when we realize it to pray like the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We don't pray like Augustine, like, Lord, Make me clean, but not yet. We run to Christ and say, search my heart, Jesus. Deal with us. He makes us clean, not only from our sins, but the effects of other sins against us. And he deals with what's deep in us. And I apologize if at Reservoir Church we have ever acted like we can just be surface level people. Oh, the grace of Christ, that, you know, we're just going to preach that. We're gospel-centered. We're really good. But you must know that Jesus desires to make you like him. And it's not light work. It's not the most pleasant life at times, but it is good. Think of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I'm sure I've used this example before. And C.S. Lewis loves... Like taking little lizards and dragons and descaling them in his story. So there's something to it. But maybe you've read it. The movie does not do justice to the book in this instance. But Eustace, the, the cousin, right? He has fallen asleep in the dragon's lair and he has what? Become the dragon. 
And here's what C.S. Lewis says in his book. One night as Eustace lay a week thinking what on earth would become of me, he looked up and saw a great lion walking toward him. And Eustace was terrified, but the lion spoke, follow me. The lion led him a long way into the mountains where they came upon a well that was more like a big round bath. And Eustace thought if he could just bathe in it, he could ease his pain. But the lion told him to undress first. And it occurred to Eustace that perhaps dragons could shed skins like snakes. So he began shedding ugly skins. But each time there was yet another layer of dragon skin beneath, all hard and wrinkled just as before. And as he was wondering just how many layers there were, because he just wanted to take this bath, the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. Does this sound like anybody? And according to Eustace, he goes on to say, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And he goes on to say, when he peeled the beastly, or well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. The pleasure of new life, of following Christ, that it can be painful in the moment to deal with what is deep inside us, but he's giving you a new heart. He's making you his like him. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus cleans, he covers, and he deals with us to life. Jesus is the one who has dealt with our sin in such a way that we are able to come just as we are to a holy God, there to find mercy and grace sufficient for our needs and grace to be like him made whole. It doesn't matter who we are or what we've done, whether our problem is defilement, transgression, or spiritual adultery. Christ has paid the price for us and has enabled us to draw near to receive God's blessing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, run to Jesus. Be made clean. Be welcomed into the presence of your creator, forgiven and free. And know that if he doesn't clean you, you have no part in him. And then run with Jesus. Wear his righteousness. Hear the truth from Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. While receiving his grace, extend that grace to others and make things right as he makes them right for you. You run to Jesus, run with Jesus, and then run like Jesus. Be open to his transformative work By the Spirit, being renewed, made whole, made human again. We won't always have traffic signs on our journey, um, warning of the speed bumps, the unresolved things to be dealt with, but we will always have Jesus. The judge is on our side. And now, 
we can drive 55. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for the cleaning, covering, and dealing work that you do in us. Jesus, it's from your finished work that we have the hope of life at all. And it is a gift to those that could not deserve deserve it. You call us to come freely and to eat, to be given sustenance in you. But you don't only clean us and cover us, you also deal with us. You make us like you. Lord, increasingly give us spaces where it is safe for us to tell others how you are dealing with us. That together we will see how you will transform us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning we're going to take communion. And I realized I didn't get any ushers. So maybe Zoth dudes, could you distribute the elements for us? But we take this meal as a family together as a reminder of the finished work of Jesus, that by his blood we've been cleansed, we've been covered, and he's in the process of dealing with us. And this is a meal for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus. And so if you're here and you've yet to do that, we just ask that you would abstain, not take the the cup and the bread, but watch us as we declare the finished work of Jesus together. So as the elements are distributed, I invite you to go before the Lord in prayer and ask him for the ways in which he wants to deal a little bit more with you this week. Remind you of his cleaning work, his covering work in you. And we'll take all the elements together.